What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Jay Williams. Jay was the second overall pick in the 2002 NBA draft and is currently an NBA analyst and radio host for ESPN. We talk about his daily schedule at ESPN, the motorcycle accident that forced him to retire from the NBA, his battle with depression, the future of sports media, and more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jay, and I think you will too. So let's get right into it. All good? All right. Thank you so much for doing this. Come on, man. It's my I, pleasure. I appreciate it, man. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Mm. All-American, MBA, businessman, entrepreneur. You're from Jersey? I'm from Jersey. You're from Jersey. You lived in Miami. I lived in Miami. You're in uh, North Carolina. I, I was in North I, Carolina. I, I was and I'm still a Duke fan. Okay. Uh, so this is awesome for me, man. This is great. Awesome, man. Let's, let's start with, uh, uh, I just like personally have a question about your life right now. Okay. What the hell is a day in the life? Because I, yeah, I feel like you're, you're on TV at, you know, on radio at six, on TV at six, uh-huh. it goes till 10. You got a lot going on. What does a day in the life of, uh, of Jay Williams look like? Uh, I wake up every day around 2.30, 2.45. Um, I get caught up with what happened the night before, depending upon whether I stayed up to watch a game or not. I'm typically out of my house around 3.45. How does that look? Are those like notes someone prepares for you or you're just online, t- Twitter, whatever? So a combination of both. So yeah. I, I decide, like, I, I really believe outsourcing as much as possible to make my life as easy as yeah. possible. So uh, throughout randomly scrolling online and getting people's resumes, I found an individual that literally helps me with every single game and notes from beat writers and things before that happened the night before. Amazing. So almost like I get uh, like a memorandum, memorandum that gets delivered to me in the morning first thing that I get a chance to go over, all right, here are the seven NBA games. Here are the two NFL games that occurred. And I try to stay up and watch as much yeah. as possible. But realistically... You can't watch 12 games. Yeah, right? and by 9.30, I have three kids under four. Like, I'm starting to fade, yeah. you know? Um, so I go over that. And then I start actually formulating my own opinions. Because on my car ride in, I watch a lot of games. I go through YouTube highlights, unless I didn't watch the games the night before. And I start, okay, here's what other people in the marketplace said. Do I agree? Do I not agree? And also, like, how does this... How does my opinion that I formed earlier in the year, if there's a red thread that you can carry throughout the course of the season, is it either you know inductive, like towards that red thread commentary, or is it reductive, you know, below, and really make my opinion based off that. So literally, I do that. I get to the studio around 5:15. I prepare to do our show from six to ten, which is Keyshawn J. Will and Max, and then either that feels long, by the way, a four-hour live yeah. radio slash simulcast show. Yeah. yeah. I've done like two hour stuff before and that's retired. And you know what's really funny about that yeah. though? Like people people say to me, well, you're reading off a script. I'm like, I'm not reading off any teleprompter, yeah. any script. It's all off the top of my head. And yeah. a lot of times you have to deal with random topics that in today's cancel culture can really make people feel uncomfortable. Yep. So, and you're not informed about everything that you're expounding upon either. So talking intellectually around subject matter or being informed or having the grace, honestly, to bow out I'm not, of conversations know. when, like, yeah. look, this is not. Well, I don't say that it feels long from a viewership perspective. I say that it feels long for you for that exact reason, which is four hours, a lot of content, right? There's no way, or it's very difficult at least, for one individual to be able to talk for four hours every single day about a topic that they're, they're certain about, right? Mm-hmm. Very different topics. Uh, so I imagine that's probably a difficult part about it. Are you trying to cut through? Yeah. Or are you trying to give an informed opinion? Yeah. Informed opinions don't always cut through. Mm-hmm. Polarizing opinions 
cut through. Yeah. So for me, over the last 10 years, how do you formulate polarizing, informed opinions that are polarizing because they are realistic, right? Like we have so many extremes that for me, I'm like, okay, I found an avenue that can cut through by just being realistic. Yeah. So when somebody says, Kyrie is the worst teammate. And I'm like, well, hold on. There are six or seven other NBA players have decided not to get vaccinated, but it's only that the city of New York has mandated that now we're going to make Kyrie Irving yeah, the face of all yeah. unvaccinated people. You know, that that's unfair. Yeah. We should we should have the same level of scrutiny if you are going to criticize Kyrie as Bradley Bill and other players who have decided, Jonathan Isaac, who have decided not to be vaccinated. But, you know, different strokes are different folks. So I found a way to cut through in that capacity. So do a four-hour show. Four one-hour shows is how we like to kind of categorize it in the mm -hmm. TV industry. Then turn around and try to get myself prepared for the big show, which is Stephen A. Smith, which is debating that on first take. And then, and I have what are the differences between those two, right? Because so I asked for one specific reason. When I look at TV today, mm -hmm. uh, I imagine it's probably pretty difficult to only get call it 20 to 30 seconds to get your point across, right? Yeah. And it feels like uh, that's a common theme, right? Maybe you have a little bit more time on the radio side because it's, it's a longer show and you know it's an open discussion. But when you're physically debating someone back and forth like that, you have 20, 30 seconds, producers probably in your ear saying, you know, Stephen's up next, Stephen A's up next. H have you struggled with that? Is, that? is that difficult? No, because I think I have more of a, a TV background than a radio background. Yeah. Radio allows you to expound yeah. and actually articulate the details of here's my thesis and now let me tell you why but it's almost like when you do debate format you don't lead with just regular dialogue you lead with a headline like what what allows you yeah as you're scrolling through ig what stops you to read something a headline there's no fluff allowed to no. start it so yeah. it's like you know and this is the way they teach you it's like lead with your headline your thesis and then now explain why you have that thesis so your ability to be quick, your ability to be efficient matters. But you also learn how to navigate, right? Mm -hmm. Stephen A is great at this. If you ever pay attention to what he says, sometimes he says the same thing in different ways two or three times, yeah. right? Because you do have to eat up clock. Somebody yeah. does have to carry the show, especially when it's their show. So you also learn the skills of debating, the skills of, Okay, writing down what somebody actually says, does this fit into their thesis, finding counterpoints against their thesis that if you believe something differently. So it's almost like a new level of your brain that you reach other than doing sports talk radio that feels like we are boys kicking yeah. it on our couch, yeah. just you know, shooting the shit. What, what sets him apart, Stephen A specifically? Right, and, and I ask that, not necessarily that I, I or anyone else thinks he's the best of the best, mm -hmm. but he's obviously uh, done an incredible job. He gets, you, everyone can look up his salary, right? I think it's probably public at this point. Uh, he's built an incredible resume for himself and all of this stuff. Is there anything that you've seen from him personally that just, you're like, that makes sense? His relentless attack, he's always on yeah. and never stops. And he is an entertainer, man. Yeah, It's almost what you saw with Shannon Sharp sitting courtside at the Lakers game when he got into the beef with Dylan Brooks, right? Yeah. Like to me, I'm watching that saying, damn, that reminds me of WWE. Yeah. Like that's wrestling, right? Yeah. There is an element Everything of- Everything is WWE. Yes. <laughs> so, what? Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you yeah. something as I look at the camera, right? Like, yeah. Think about that. Think about yeah. if you say, I'm like, what are you talking about? Let me, let me type. Yeah. That's way different. What? It's different than sitting on your couch, posted up with a mic and-, and But it's different in just the, the level of engagement. So if we're yeah. talking on first take 
And I say, what? What are you talking about? That mm-hmm. is way different than what? Yeah. Let me tell you something. Like that display of addressing the camera, that gets your attention from an audience perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? And then if I lead with a strong argument, and if I keep talking as a producer, if you are Jay, two minutes, Jay, one minute, and then you get the ball back, you have to make a counterpoint in 45 seconds, which is not easy to do. Yeah. Right? That he's really good at doing. So I think it's the trick of the trade, learning how to make points, get in, get out, but also, hey, I want to hold on to the rock for a second. Let me show you why. Yeah. All right, everyone, quick interruption to talk about the sponsor of this episode, Golden. Did you know that a Lionel Messi trading card recently sold for over $500,000 on Golden Auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles. And better yet, it's not just for high ticket items. Golden's marketplace is open 24 seven and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles start at just $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenient and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. Whether you're looking to buy, grade or vault, Golden has something for everyone and is your one-stop destination for the love of collecting. And if you're looking to sell, now is the time to do it. Golden is offering all sellers up to 50% off marketplace fees when you list your items before February 17th. I'm a huge fan of Golden, and I know you'll enjoy it too. Head over to golden.com to get started. That's G-O-L-D-I-N.com. All right, let's get back to this episode. Have you, uh, how has it been as a former player, right? I think about this a lot because there's a difference between someone who has never played sports at a very high level, like professional level, doing this. And there's a difference between someone that has and is friends with a lot of players, right? Say you retire today, you start ESPN tomorrow. Is it difficult to say negative things? Is it difficult to talk about people you played with, your friends with, et cetera? How do you feel about that kind of component to the job? So I would kind of, come back to you with another question. What am I trying to achieve? So am I trying to be the loudest person in the room? Am I trying to give the athlete POV? Am I trying to become part of what the media news cycle really is? How am I cutting through, right? I think it all starts with how you want to cut through. For me, frankly, kicking off doing media doing college basketball for six or seven years, I was trying to be the next Dick Vitale. Yeah. And you're like, well, there's only one Dick Vitale. Then you say Jay Billis. I'm like, all right, he has more of a legal background. And I think over the years, I've learned that, okay, like I am a young black male. I've had different experiences than you, mm-hmm. right? I need to lean into that. That doesn't make it bad that I have different experiences. It just gives me a different POV that I can explain. I am also pro player. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of media is about criticizing players. But like we criticize NBA, NFL players more so than we criticize our politicians. Yeah. Which is shameful to me. Yeah. But that is the vortex that we live in. So when you take the counterproductive kind of, well, I guess, according to media, the counter to that, and you say, well, here's it from the athlete perspective. Like um, something we dealt with today, A.J. Brown, they just beat up on the Giants Divisional round championship, That's right? My team, That's my so. team, too. Hurt me, too, right? <laughs> love hurt. Saquon. Yeah. Love Danny Dimes. But they beat up on him. And then A.J. Brown, you know, talked about a moment where Nick Sirianni literally put his hand on him on the sideline while they're up 31 to 7. Mm-hmm. And then he, had, he felt the need to come out with a comment saying, I'm not a diva wide receiver. I just wanted the ball, blah, blah, blah. And everybody's like, well, I see I told you this athlete's thinking about himself. I'm like, first off, every athlete thinks about themselves. Like, yeah. I've been in games where we won the game by 20. I'm like, damn, I shot... 
seven of 28 from the field. Like, I need to be better. I can you still, can still be happy. Yes, yeah, yeah. I can be pissed off with my performance or my lack thereof production, mm-hmm. while also still celebrating in the fact that our team won the game. Yep. I'm a competitive dude. By the way, those are the same habits that got me to the highest level that allowed me to be one of the best wide receivers in the game of football. Yeah. So, you know, those two can go together, can blend together, and I, helping people understand that and providing a perspective on that I think is important because otherwise, if you didn't play the sport, you would label him as a diva yeah. that only cares about himself. I'm like, that's not actually true. Yeah, I, I think that role is very important actually, right? I think providing uh, an example of what an athlete's mindset might be in those situations is, is probably um, doesn't get enough credit. The other thing I would ask is the state of media today, right? I think over the last, People call it new media, whatever they want to call it, right? But <laughs> what is like, new media? I I frame new media as people talking shit, okay. <laughs> All right. but it's not really right. New media is like Draymond's gonna have a podcast, and now he goes back to the hotel room after Game Six in Boston, whatever game it was, and t- gets on the mic, says, "I played like shit. We can do this better, whatever." Right? Or Bob Myers, the GM of their team, having his own podcast now, right? Yeah. So yes. like you hear directly from them rather than a reporter asking a question, printing the part that they want, etc. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably part of it. What is your, like, if you if you just zoom out for a minute and you look at the landscape of media today, new stuff, old stuff, stuff in between, like, what do you take of all this? Is it good that we have more voices in the in the uh, scenario now? Is it is it not good? Like, just how do you think about media? So I, I think if we're framing new media from the athlete first perspective. What do you think about new media? I love that. No, but how do you, what's your definition of it? See, I, I think there could be, for me, I try to come at things from a, a level of empathy, yeah, right, an informed perspective, mm-hmm. uh, an objective perspective. Like I think we have lost the ability to hear people who are objective and how they actually look at it. Mm-hmm. Because I even see from our network and other networks that the more objective you are and you can be so reasonable in your response, that's not the stuff that gets pushed on social media. Or that's not the stuff that gets the million views on social media because it's not polarizing, Mm -hmm. right? But I still think that's eventually going to cut through because that's how athletes should think. So it's also like, okay, this is what athletes are striving for. This is also how athletes need to think about where they're going. So for me, I like the fact that Draymond Green can then go into his hotel room and do a podcast and give you a firsthand account of what actually happened in the game from his perspective. Now, there are repercussions with that. You know, um, what position does that put your teammates in? They have to answer questions according to details that outside people will not have, that it can compromise them. But I think if you're able to, you know, kind of straddle that line, then you can make, you can cut through. Yeah, what was was the rumor or whatever that they were getting information from his podcast or whatever? Like, I don't know if that's true, but. But also, I mean, I'm the one dictating the information that you hear. So is it really the information that you should be paying attention to? Could be the opposite. Could be, you have no idea. Yeah. Right, so it can be utilized that way too. Well, I, I imagine if you looked at the podcast downloads that it would tell you how much of demand there is because it seemed like everyone was talking about it, right? So, so that first person perspective uh, feels like it's not only helpful, but probably where we're headed, right? Where, where athletes have more power and they can go in, uh, talk about these things themselves. They don't need a network. But also you see the way that creates a new cycle and a yeah. ripple effect. Yeah. So when Draymond releases his podcast on Colin Coward's podcast network, then that gets amplified on ESPN, on Fox, and every other news segment starts promoting your podcast. Yeah. Right? So that's the genius of it. It's watching Stephen A. Smith 
and his book, Straight Shooter. Mm -hmm. right? He's utilizing his oh, platform yeah. to sell his own book, which is one of the reasons why it will be a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. So using one platform to build another while being able to capitalize on that economically is all the plan. You wrote a bestseller, didn't you? I did. You did? I did. How was that process? <laughs> Arduous. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard it's, uh, it's not the most fun thing in the world. It's difficult, right? So for me, I really, I mean, there's a level of positioning for anything that you do, Yeah. right? Um, so to give people context, it, it was your whole story, right? Yes. This was what, 2015, 2016? Yeah, this is about, wow, I've aged quickly. Right, but it was yeah. around there. Eight years ago, yeah. Uh, and it was just your whole story, right? From reaching the mountain, falling back down, now climbing back up, the whole deal. Uh -huh. um, but talk me through the process of, of why you wrote it, writing it, et cetera. So, I have a lawyer who's a really good friend mm -hmm. who went through a really bad divorce. And this happened to me after I went through my accident, after I broke off my engagement with my significant other. I was living here in the Lower East Side. I was not in a great space. I was partying with my friends, living a completely different lifestyle. And what year is this? Uh, I mean, this is 2014, 2015. Okay, so I, mean, right I was, before that. Yeah, I, w I, was, I was depressed. Yeah. I was kind of depressed. And the, the most challenging aspect of it in New York is when people recognize you. It's like, oh, you used to be the guy on the... What happened? Yeah. Right? So having to answer that question all the time. Did, was that... I, I stopped there because I feel like that's probably something that I know personally I would struggle with, right? Is, mm. is you probably went from a degree of when people saw you in the streets, they're like, it's fucking Jay Williams, right? Yeah. And then what you just framed it there as, you used to be that guy, right? Exactly. That flip, it may not sound like a lot to a lot of people, right? But just knowing uh, mentally that that probably messed you up a little bit. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, come on. It's like four years ago, if I said Disney to you, you're like, stock prices, wow. I say Disney yeah. to you now, you're like, yeah. it's interesting time. Bob Iger's coming back, Bob Shapek out, yeah. right? It ebbs and flows. So for me at that time, what Jay Williams had meant to me before was this, this high level of people trying to attain to achieve something that I never even thought I would be able to achieve. Yeah. Right? You become the second pick in the draft. You play for the Chicago Bulls. You have Michael Jordan's locker room. Um, you have deals with Chevrolet, deals with Gatorade. You have all these different brands. Like you're creating a business. You know, I never yeah. thought I would be a millionaire. I just got lucky enough to become a millionaire and playing basketball. Whereas that look, that state of awe changed to a look of pity and sorrow yeah. and where did you i know you're i know you're all oh, the motorcycle yeah so for me i didn't know how to frame that narrative and the is more, that where the depression came from that well the, the not not specifically that right switching <sighs> but sip of my coffee. yeah <laughs> i imagine that uh i mean we don't have to go into all the details no let's right? go I just into think it that I, I i just think it's fascinating right because i really do think that if you were to point out you know people that have have done exactly that Second pick in the draft. I imagine that's probably one of the best feelings in the in the world, right? I can I can only imagine you, your family, everyone involved, amazing. And a level of being overwhelmed and yeah. over-indexed from that yeah. kind of ultimate outcome that occurred, by the way. What do you mean by that? Like too, well, too happy? Like Well, not too happy. I mean, it's this moment where you are thrusted, and when I say over-indexed, with yeah. decisions, not really having the finance background or yep. business background to make these decisions. And a lot of people that have came into your life have came into your life for the purpose of making money. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that, but then the trust level, I mean, you talk about this and how you're scaling your business right now. Like there's, when your partner is your wife, there's a level of trust there mm -hmm. on what are production costs? Um, how are we keeping overhead down? Everyone like, has the same incentives. Exactly, yeah. how, like how are we increasing the margins? And for mm -hmm. us, 
thinking you know how to answer that while still learning the business, but trusting people to run the business for you is a, a really hard position to be in, especially when there's millions of dollars on the line. So things had changed for me. The relationships had changed for me. When I'm shaking David Stern's hand, being the second pick in the draft, I'm like, wow, that equates to $14.6 million over three years. That gets inflated by 11%. You start recognizing all these. And I look at my mom and my dad, I'm like, okay, they are now employees of my LLC. Should they be employees of my yeah. LLC? How much should I pay them? Oh, I get gift tax over anything that's $10,000 or more. What's the right way to funnel money towards them? Should I create a, a business where I make an investment? What is that investment I wanna make and what business? Who am I trusting to run accounting on all that business? How much trust should I give my parents? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a million things. Oh, yeah, a you million. get conflated yeah. with also like who you love and who's been around longest with Am I conflating that with who's mo the most competent to run my business? Yeah. And I see that now with kids. I go, well, my, my dad's been around for my whole life. He's helped me make sound decisions. Okay, does that mean your dad is competent enough to be your agent? Yeah. Like, we need to be able to decipher between all these worlds that we live in. And I, It feels like that almost, like, hasn't changed, right? From when you were doing it to now. Those, they still struggle with a lot of those issues, right? It's, it, I mean, maybe you have better people in place and there's better infrastructure, but at the end of the day, uh, you still have to hire an agent. You still have to figure out what your parents are, if they're going to be involved or not be involved. What is the solution to that, right? Like, it doesn't feel like there's a great one. Well, I mean, I think in a way I try to provide that yeah. for young people because mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of ways you can go about doing things now. If you have your ducks in a row, yeah. you can, I mean, it's almost like what we've done with the honest to a degree, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, let's look at something. So you get an endorsement deal. If you're the second pick or first pick in the draft, you can probably demand this right now where there's so many um, extra dollars on the table that you have no idea of the world that even exists that comes along with it. So you have one, two, three, three cameras here, right? Mm -hmm. So the way I look at it from the production side is I say, okay, let's say Chevrolet comes to me and they, they wanna pay me a million dollars a year to be the face of Chevrolet. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting my MBA contract, that's 4% that I might owe my agent, but I'm gonna negotiate my agent down because if I'm gonna be the first pick in the draft, that's fixed, Yeah. right? That's fixed. Mm -hmm. So maybe I can get you for 1% just to manage my relationship with my team and be that buffer. I don't really need to pay you 4%, mm -hmm. okay? Marketing wise, if I work with a content house and Chevrolet wants to pay me $1 million, my agent will then get 20% of that. But here's a way I've learned how to pay myself. So if I have my own production company, right, for being that top tier person for Chevrolet, hey, wait, I can pay my production company and say, hey, agent, you're gonna only get 10%, that other 10% is gonna come back through my company. Mm -hmm. And in a way, let me outsource all production and say to Chevrolet, hey, by the way, your creative agency or the that third party that you outsource to production-wise, we don't need them. Why do we need them? Yeah, They're not gonna be able to tell you what is truly authentic to me. Mm -hmm. My team will be able to tell you that. So if I'm spending time with you and I say, okay, you like, when you, every time you drive your car, you like to eat Oreos, <laughs> or you like to go through, you like to listen to country music. Yeah. Okay, great. Like now I can build the right creative for Chevrolet to best showcase you in that Chevrolet spot. And yeah. by the way, are we doing a linear spot? Or are we doing a digital spot? Right, so then so think about how now all of a sudden you're in business with the athlete. And by the way, how you outsource that from a production perspective, instead of them using a third party, you say, no, we can utilize that. We can shoot it properly. And now all of a sudden if you work out that deal, now you're creating enterprise with something that actually has a P&L and you can increase 
you know, your overall business strategy because now you're eating from multiple streams of income. If you look it's at uh, the, the, the most, what people would consider the financially successful athletes in the world today, mm -hmm. right? There's a few different ways to do it in my opinion. You can get paid a shit ton of money through your contract, which is yep. how, how a lot of people do it. Uh, and then you look at guys like a LeBron, a Kevin Durant, right? People like that, and, and there's others in other sports. But they built these, to your point, platforms or enterprises where there's four or five different things going on. They all leverage each other. They do. And, Ecosystem. And, and in a lot of times, they uh, what they're doing is they're building enterprise value. And they're doing it so they can sell that for a multiple that they wouldn't be able to get elsewhere, right? LeBron can go and do commercials, but there's only so many commercials he can do. There's only so much a brand is going to pay him, and that's physical time out of his hands. Uh -huh. It's much easier to go hire someone to run a production house or a studio or an investment firm or a, a tequila company or whatever it is, right? Have them be the CEO, put some money into it, whatever, or raise money, whatever it is, get a multiple of that and use your power and influence and connections to scale that. And I think uh, that's changed over time, right? Like even if you look at Michael Jordan, when he first started, sure, the Nike deal everyone knows about, but he was doing the same commercials with Gatorade, with Hanes, with every, you know the same stuff. And I think over time, that's that's more people are becoming accustomed to that. But you have to really want to be an entrepreneur. You can't just say, I'm going to go hoop and that's it. Or you have to have someone that's willing to do it, right? Agreed. Yeah. But the, the, the reality is that I learned quickly that as an athlete or a TV personality, this whole world of six degrees of separation is thrown out the window. Yeah, It's one degree of separation. Mm -hmm. Every entrepreneur... Every investment banker, every politician I've met wanted to be an athlete in some form or fashion. And every athlete wants to be some kind of entertainer, oh, politician, CEO. 100%. So who is bridging that gap? And the more you can get the athlete into, okay, let's realistically look at it. If you're making $35, $40 million a year, what is it to you? If you're Joe Burrow, you're about to sign a contract mm -hmm. for $50 million a year. What is it to you to take two of the best seats in the house that the team is willing to give you and start reaching out to different executives in different fields that you're interested in to come to games, to meet post game for a drink afterwards to sit down with you and your team to say, here are a couple of ideas we sketch for you. What is your interest? What do you think about this business model? Where should we go? Yeah. I mean, it just creates an ecosystem that is hard to turn down opportunity. And it's all about access, man. At the end of the day, most people don't have access to the type of deals that athletes have access to. Yeah. You got to take advantage of it. Yeah, I completely agree. Access is like the number one word, I would imagine, right? Where, where and then execution. Execution, Absolutely. yeah, for sure. Uh, I just, I, I feel like I see a lot of athletes not taking advantage of that sometimes, right? And I think that's probably frustrating to a degree to people who don't have the access, who have great ideas, or trying to raise money, or trying to do these things. But it is the world we live in. So can I get back to my one yeah, point real quick? Ahead. So I was going to say the reason why I think I decided to write the book was for mm -hmm. a multitude of reasons. Number one, it was something that was cathartic for me. And... I wanted to grow through the process of really trying to recognize who I was and who I wanted to become. So taking you on that journey with me, I thought was important. And probably the second reason, which is probably more important than the first was, I think a lot of times as an athlete, I was always seen as such an outlier. I wasn't relatable. Mm -hmm. And there were certain things with my personal life that I felt if I were to communicate to the public, I would become judged on. Like, you know, Tom Brady going through a divorce. like. <laughs> And I think that, can we stop there for a second? I think that was the most fucked up thing in, in sports media this year. How maybe you agree, maybe you don't. And, and oh, it, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that that so if you remember correctly, the picture of him, he looked like a different person, right, at a press conference. That picture was 
probably one of the most shared images on social media this year, right? When it went up, everyone was tweeting about it. What's wrong with Tom? Tom looks like something's wrong, whatever. Think about his mindset during that period of time. And maybe you look out and you're like, Tom doesn't give a shit, he's not on Twitter, he doesn't care, right? But at the end of the day, that's a person, right? The guy is clearly going through something extremely, extremely difficult. And I thought to myself, literally when that happened, I was like, there's no fucking way in hell I'm gonna share that. There's no way in hell. That guy is clearly going through something. And it came out weeks later that it was a divorce and, and you know everything that goes along with that. But I just felt that if that wasn't Tom Brady, one, it wouldn't have happened, right? People would be sensitive to that or have some empathy to the situation. Uh, but, but I was very disappointed in, in whether you want to call it the system or whatever it is, hmm. that, that people felt that that was okay to do. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you felt the same, but I just... I feel that it way. It was sad. It was sad. I feel that way a lot of times. I mean, yeah. well, welcome to the news industry. Yeah. And news media entities prey upon those type of stories. Now, you have Giselle... One of the most beautiful supermodels and you know businesswomen in the world going mm-hmm. through a divorce with Tom Brady. Who can I link t- Tom Brady to now? Yeah, like yeah. oh, this girl took a picture. Was at the <laughs> game wearing a Tom Brady jersey. Oh, are they dating? Like, what does that mean? Tom's like, like, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> it, it's it, it's like what I saw with with Kanye. Not to bring Kanye into it because it, it brings up a bigger conversation. Yeah. But you know, a media person was trying to take a picture of Kanye a couple of days ago with his new wife. And he was like, yo, man, I don't want any pictures taken of me right now. Like, I'm not ready for the world to know that me and my new wife, while we're still trying to figure out who we are, yeah. you know, now I got to deal with that. And, and Kim and, you know, my ex-wife and my kids and how's that going to affect my kids? So it just, it, it creates this world where you become reluctant to be your real self because you can't be your real self. Mm-hmm. So you become a facade. Mm-hmm. But then people kill you for saying everything politically correct, because we wish you would actually just tell us how you really feel. No, you don't, because you will kill me yeah. for telling you how I like, really wait, feel. He literally said, what, 70% of the time he lies up on, on the- Yeah, he, he why wouldn't you? Opposite. I mean, this is eight years ago. I was like, yo, 80% of NBA players smoke marijuana. Yeah. And like, I, NBA guys are like, why would you say that, Bob? I'm like, it's true. Yeah. I'd much rather you smoke cannabis than you actually go home and take three ibuprofen 800s. You know what that does to the lining of your stomach? Yeah. Like, or as Keyshawn and I joke around on our show, he's like, oh, we, we call that, you know, uh, Dr. Wizard. Yeah. I like, don't smoke weed, but I always laugh at people that drink a lot, complain about people smoking weed. I'm okay. like, that's fucking poison and <laughs> this one's legal well, too. Let me, so, so, let me, like, so let me pose this on you. Yeah. Even if you're against smoking marijuana. Yeah. So Patrick Mahomes is about to play in an AFC championship game, mm-hmm. right? He has a high ankle sprain. Have you ever had a high ankle sprain? Yeah, it's not. Okay. It's not a- I've had a high ankle sprain. Just me rolling my ankle. I've never had a high ankle sprain. Somebody that is 6'5", 290 pounds, rolling on my ankle, okay? I thought it was broke at first. I thought it was broken too, yeah. but now I have to get out of the way of Cincinnati's defense. But by the way, their D-line is pretty special. Mm-hmm. I saw what they did to Josh Allen for 10 carries and 26 yards. The best running QB beside him and Lamar Jackson debated, I don't care. That's challenging. So this on a Dr. Wizard, is way more acceptable because the world doesn't really know about it as much, more so than smoking cannabis that gets criticized. Yeah. Right? Even though the conversation I think has changed around that to a degree, but if you're thinking about ways to decrease inflammation, like that's an alternative way. I'd much rather do that than guys on the plane drinking a six pack yeah. or smoking cigarettes post game. Yeah. It's just all the way the stories are framed that can get utilized against the athlete. Yeah, well, and a lot of that goes back to the headline stuff, right? When you have to lead with something that's super aggressive to get attention, 
that incentivizes you to do the opposite of nuance, right? And it's and it's uh, not. And that's why helpful. I wrote a book. Yeah. That's why I wrote a book. Life is not an accident. Because yeah. for me, instead of trying to be polarizing by telling everybody in the world how different I am, I try to create more relatability tactics. Yeah. Right. And so I say, okay. So my lawyer goes through a really bad divorce. His wife leaves him after five or six years. Yeah, what years. was the story you were doing with that? So essentially, like, you know, my lawyer has done extremely well. Uh-huh. Really good guy. He's one of my best friends. Literally came home one day. His wife was gone. Just left. Gone. Got up and left. Didn't say anything? His motorcycle accident. And in my brain, I saw him deal with that in real time. And I said, damn, I thought what I went through was really tough. I can't imagine going through that. And I saw how depressed he was and I saw how painful it was and I saw how difficult it was for him to His motorcycle to accident is in his worst point in his life. Exactly. Gotcha. Right? And how do you build those connection points to other people by saying, I'm just like you in so many different ways. Yeah. And here are the ways that I learned how to fight through the struggle. And maybe there's some lessons that I learned throughout my journey that you can see applicable in your life and we can share our stories and create that kind of communicative measure instead of me being off by my own and just dealing with my pain by myself. Yeah. And literally build off that narrative. And I think that's what I've been able to do. All right, everyone. Quick word from the sponsor of this episode, So Rare. This is probably one of the hottest companies in sports right now. It was founded in 2018 by two guys named Nicola Julia and Adrian Monfort. They loved fantasy sports and sports collectibles. So they took the best parts of both industries and combined them to create So Rare. Athletes like Lionel Messi, Kylian Mbappe, Rudy Gobert, and Serena Williams are ambassadors for the company. And they now have more than 2 million registered users in 185 countries. But here's how it works. So Rare lets you buy, sell, and trade digital trading cards of your favorite player. And rather than just looking at them, you can use these trading cards to enter fantasy sports competitions for digital rewards like more cards and experiential rewards like going to an NBA game, meeting players, or winning merch. But here's the best part. It's completely free to get started. And if you go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to sign up, SoRare is going to give you an additional 20 free cards for your collection. So go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to sign up and let's see if you can beat me. All right, let's get back to the episode. When you think uh, about the depression in general, it sounds like part of the book was helpful to that, right? Of, of getting your thoughts out and telling everyone the complete story. But it also sounds like you might've dealt with a lot of that before writing the book. Was there anything that you look back on that was specific that was like super helpful in getting your mind to shift on some of these things? So I am obsessive compulsive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have addictive tendencies in my life. And I think one of the things that I really learned during that time, and I, I can't say who I learned it from because it was a private conversation, but I think a lot of those addictive principles that I had, like I was addicted to the court. Like to me, it was all about basketball education business, basketball education business, all day, every day. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit rebellious and I had some moments where I did some things I probably shouldn't have done, which ultimately probably led me to my motorcycle accident, right? Um, but I think when I had my accident, this loss of identity, this loss of self, led me to have that same kind of addictive measure towards something that continued to numb me from the pain. That was Oxycontin, that was drinking, that was just being depressed. And I think learning how to channel that towards things that have positive benefits in my life was my secret. I was like, wait, channeling that energy towards my wife, channeling that energy towards my children, channeling that energy towards a project, channeling it towards my career. Now there's 
different things I've had to learn about that process, right? Because a lot of it. Yeah, became, it's not overnight. I yeah, imagine, right? Career driven. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, okay, like I want to be the best, most relatable person there is on TV, and not just give the normal polarizing take, but actually think about it. Think how it would affect me. Think about how it would affect the athlete. Think about it through the prism of business and sports, and then create that red thread and tie it through for everybody. That's a different entry point mm-hmm. than most people. But I had to become addicted to the process, frankly. And then I think sometimes, man, like moments lend themselves to you for good or for bad. Like, uh, you know, today is the three-year anniversary of Kobe Bryant passing away. And like, Joe, I'll never forget, man, like I was on my way to ESPN to do a game. And I was living in Brooklyn. I was going to the South Street Seaport. I was in an Uber over to Brooklyn Bridge and literally got a call that Kobe Bryant has just passed away in a helicopter accident. Now, it's almost like um, those are moments where I don't know what I'm going to say on TV, but I had this relationship with Kobe on the outside looking in. You know, he was like a brother to me, but more like a mentor. But I didn't spend every day with Kobe. My interactions with Kobe... I would see him once every year, but he would always talk to me like I was his little guy. And I've had some moments working out where I would see things. I was like, damn, okay, like I have to model my life. And like all of a sudden being thrusted on camera during that moment and like tell the world what Kobe means to you in two minutes. What the fuck? Yeah. How am I supposed to do that? It's an impossible, impossible task. Yeah, and you start speaking from your spirit, from your soul. And then one of the most challenging aspects, and I talked to my wife about that, was here I was, I almost passed away when I was 21 years old. I went through depression. I pulled myself out of depression and started building this career in media. And a lot of the mamba mentality is what I have subscribed to in my life. It's helped me get through a lot of troubling shit. And And that's just like hard work in, in that perspective. Yeah, but also like, seeing what I want to accomplish, not seeing what just occurred, right? So extracting positives from all these other lessons that people would say were failures. And I looked at it as opportunities to grow and become better, right? So translating that energy into like, okay, like let's keep working, let's be better. Like, here's my goal. Here's how my goal has changed. Here I want to continue to achieve my goal. And and literally building that into a sports business plan, Mm. right? Like there's a business plan for how you become a max player, there's a business plan for how you become the next LeBron James, like, and literally following what that plan is. So for me, in that moment, to all of a sudden say, here you are in TV talking about a guy that's really epitomized that, ups and downs, whether cheating on his wife, whatever that may be, right? Just the roller coaster ride of life, but he always strived to be better, was hard as hell. And then all of a sudden, when you go viral, because of your comments, you're like, how is that supposed to make me feel? Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to go viral. Yeah. I was just telling you honestly how that moment was for me and what I felt. What are you supposed to do with that? Are you supposed to? And it's almost like how, and this is what happens in your media. I'm about to say something that I know is going to go viral. <laughs> so when DeMar Hamlin almost dies on the football field and Skip Bayless who's been in media for a very long time, decides to send a tweet with a punctuation at the end. He knows exactly what he's doing, right? 
even if that was a mistake, he's been so trained, he knows how media works. That creates stir and attention. So while this guy is fighting for his life on the field, you are more worried or preoccupied about what does this mean about the playoffs and how is this going to, what are the implications on the playoffs and you know where the home game is and all these end kind of details around the nuances or rules of the game. And then that turns into Shannon Sharp reacting to that, not coming to work the next day. Now, whether Shannon Sharp was really pissed off about it, or I think he really was, but that's a little bit of the WWE measure, right? To all of a sudden, then him coming back, them arguing, does Shannon Sharp want to be on the show or not? Shannon Sharp should do his own thing. Skip Bellis is the villain. Shannon Sharp is the hero. But you're really paying attention to everything Shannon Sharp and Skip Bellis are talking about, aren't you? So, like, in my brain, it's hard for me to exploit whether... Meaning to do that or not meaning to do that. I'm having the conversation more so at home about when I'm getting calls, this show wants you on and that show wants you to react to. I'm like, I don't know if I want to go around and do six or seven shows to relive the pain or anger or frustration that I had in that moment talking about a guy that was meaningful to me passing away. Yeah. Should I do every show? Does that elevate me? Should I not capitalize on that? But then when I see other people do that and I see it bolster their profile, you're like, I don't want to be that. But then that gets rewarded by society. Mm-hmm. That gets spoken about. That helps contract negotiations. So how do you navigate that? So for me, I'd much rather have a platform where I can tell you what time that was, regardless of whether it was done maliciously or not. The intent to capitalize on it is what capitalism is, right? So when you try to go the opposite direction of that, that's who I associate my profile with. I feel like it's almost in some way networks are are uh, appeasing the lowest common denominator, right? Of people that want that type of stuff. Because personally, right, I would much rather hear uh, you break down a basketball play or Dan Orlowski break down what a quarterback's thinking on NFL Live, right? Like, I, like I'm more interested in that stuff. I don't care about your headline opinion on uh, someone's off the court issue, right? It's just like, it's not what I come to watch the TV for, it's not what I come to watch the show for. But that's not what they're giving us, right? That's not what they do. That's like more independent stuff that's not main network driven, high quality viewership perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And it feels like, uh, I personally think that's gonna change at some point, right? I think that in, in, in one part of my mind, it says, look, this is being driven down our throats. What's the most popular social network in the world right now? TikTok. Yep. Fucking 15 second clips. Exactly. Movies. Headlines. If you ask the young person today, when's the last movie they watch? They don't watch movies. They don't watch movies. They don't watch TV. They don't watch movies. They watch that because YouTube videos have to be shorter. Anything over 30, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever, unless it's very, very, very high quality, no one's going to watch it. Mm -hmm. The attention spans have dramatically dropped. It's all attention-based stuff. Uh, But these things ebb and flow, right? And my bet is, and and a lot of the stuff that I focus on work-wise, is that'll change. I think that um, at the end of the day, quality always wins over over quantity right and and attention stuff uh and my guess is whether it's me running a newsletter or espn kind of in millions of homes that's the stuff people are going to want agree i don't want to be a part of the masses yeah i don't want to but every show's not like that right i i would argue that i would argue that what shows are we talking about on your your platform right from six to ten in the morning Mm -hmm. i wouldn't consider that our platform has different challenges though right so you know due to the old metrics of how we deem radio to be successful or not, you look in different markets. So if 
you know, prime example, like, you know, we were, we got taken off the New York market because we didn't rate as well in New York, but we're more of a national show. So if you're waking up in New York City every day and you're turning on sports talk radio, what do you want to hear about? I want to hear about my Yankees. Yeah. I want to hear about my Mets, the Knicks, probably not the Nets as much because they were in New Jersey. Yeah. I want to hear about the Rangers. I want to hear about like all my New York teams. I don't give a damn about anything else. I don't care about what Aaron Rodgers is doing in Green Bay. I don't care that Derek Carr is probably you know, not going to come back and play for the Raiders. I don't care about any of these subjects. So when you're doing a national show, trying to get local ratings, it's not going to hit the same way as a local show. Mm-hmm. right? So I, it, once again, it all depends upon what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to have a national appeal? Or are you trying to have a local appeal? And I think that's where linear TV or old school metrics in the way you're looking at radio, it's challenging. You know, now if you're if you're a show on TV, if you don't have a bona fide social media blueprint, you're going to lose. The show or the personality? The show. Yeah. I've hired my own social media team for yeah. me personally. Yeah. Because I've also seen, wow, okay, I just said this on GitHub. GitHub posted this. GitHub has 1.2 million people that follow it on social media. Let's say that's on IG. GitHub doesn't even have a TikTok account, right? Mm -hmm. So they post that. That gets 35,000 likes. I take that same clip. I post that on my channel. All of a sudden, I get 150,000 likes. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, okay, I've just surpassed what TikTok or what GitHub has done on my own channel here. But people would never know I even said that on GitHub if I didn't post that on my own page. Because that's how people consume content. How do you think about that, though? Because I actually, I, I think that's a very interesting point. And it's it's clearly shifted, right? Mm-hmm. A decade ago, I don't think a lot of people had social media teams to run this stuff. I mean, some of these platforms didn't even exist, right? So uh, how do you think about personal branding while working for a larger corporation or network or something like that, right? It seems like it's very important. Two different, two different things. Yeah. Like, I, I literally look at ESPN as their brand yeah. and Jay Williams, Inc. as his own brand. Yeah. And the two are collaborating. Mm-hmm. And I think the way we're moving is you have to learn how to be partners with talent instead of living in this world that talent just works for me. Mm-hmm. Because you have to grow at the same time. And it, it's, you know, when people say, well, you're on this show, tweet this out. I don't have to tweet that out. Mm-hmm. I don't need to let my audience know what I'm doing on this show. Like, this is my own personal, unless I'm incentivized. So I truly do believe that that relationship and it's, Athletes, its influencers will come more to like, how do you get more equity in things? How do you get more incentivized in bringing your social component to the table? And by the way, social, I talk to people differently on Twitter than I do on IG than I do on TikTok. They're all different platforms, mm-hmm. right? So the way I actually look at all that information, it's skewed differently. Like there might be a snippet of what I said of a bigger point that I'm willing to put on on IG that I'm willing to take a 15 second clip because I think that's actually gonna generate more content or more views on TikTok. So I think you have a lot of traditional companies or media companies that are just getting hip to that now and they're trying to catch up, but it's still hard because they're still in the old school matrix of what are ratings? Yeah. How do I do advertising? Well, and talent dollars? works directly for me. Exactly. I don't care what they do outside of this. But now you which care what the they opposite. do outside of it. Yeah, which is the opposite now. Exactly. Right? Like if I was an athlete, if I was a, a, a big name athlete, maybe someone kind of in between where you don't necessarily need, uh, you need the exposure, not someone who doesn't. I would go to ESPN and I'd say, hey, look, I'll come on your show every Monday. Every single Monday I'll come on. But I want you to promote this podcast I just started. I want you to promote my YouTube channel or whatever it is, right? Whatever you're trying to promote on the side. It could be a business. It could be anything else. I'll do it every single week for free. You don't have to pay me a dime. 
right? But I think, uh, not only do I think that some networks would be willing to do that, depending on who you go to or whatever it is in, in the caliber of person, uh, but, but I think that, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet with a Who's lot of the athletes. talent? Yeah, that, that, I think Who's that, the talent? I think that's what matters, right? Because if you're Tom Brady, I have religion of sports. You're going to buy X amount of pieces of content yeah. per year. Yeah. If you're Stephen A. Smith, hey, I have my own production company. I'm now the executive producer yeah. of First Take, KD. So for certain athletes, I do believe that eventually that will be able to happen to a degree at scale for athletes. And what do you Especially, mean by that? So I believe that eventually we're gonna to get to a world where every athlete is gonna have some kind of affiliation with the content house. Cause you're gonna want somebody to think about your brand 24 mm seven. -hmm. And you're gonna to wanna to take advantage of a lot of the brand dollars around the athlete. So like I said before, Chevrolet yeah. wants to come to me for a million dollars. Okay, even in this local market of Chicago, I'm your guy. Great, allocate $400,000 for marketing. And now let me build out this social strategy. Yeah. Why wouldn't you, if you're a brand, you're gonna outsource, why wouldn't you give that to some? Yeah, yeah, now you're in business more so with the athlete than ever before. Yeah. As long as they're hitting their KPIs, as long as they're hitting like the main themes that you want as a brand to accomplish, who do you care who produces the content? Yeah. I think talent is the most important thing though, right? Because what I struggle with personally is I have a million ideas million ideas. I could I could literally tell you 10 right now that I think would be big businesses, but finding operators to run the businesses are difficult. Yeah. And I think it, it only gets more difficult when you're an athlete because you have to find someone that not only is a good operator, but you can trust. And I want to trust a partner, obviously, but that's a different level of trust, right? If, especially if you're investing personal capital in the business, they have you know rights to your image to some degree, whether you sign them off or it's just by affiliation. Uh, I, I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest hurdle right now, I would say. I mean, are you around competent people 24-7? And, yeah. and, and it's really funny because a lot of athletes aren't around competent people 24-7. And then when you enter the realm of being around competent people or really smart people, you realize that they are even more voracious sharks than the non-competent people. Oh, yeah. Right? So you're like, yeah. well, hold on. It's like, it's like Shark Tank, right? You're like, yeah. hold on. Oh, the people that know what they're doing, they want you, even more. I, I, didn't, I didn't think about it that way. Damn. Yeah. Like, so it, it's all the level of thought. That's why I think who you empower to be the forward-facing entity for your business is so important that yeah. you have the resources to tap into, whether that's your respective school that you graduated from, or like, I would just be scouring the market for the best of the best. Like, and that's why I go back to this. Like for me, John Mack, who was the CEO of Morgan Stanley, I was mm -hmm. coming out of school, I wanted to learn about finances. Didn't mean I had to put my, mon my money with Morgan Stanley. Hey, John, like you have a home in, in Quag in the Hamptons, like I'm from Jersey, you're good friends with Coach K, here's what I'm thinking about, what I want my portfolio to look like in three or four years. Is this in alignment with where the markets are going? What do you think I should be doing with my money? You're a family friend. Tell me what you see running the huge ecosystem of Morgan Stanley. Why wouldn't I tap into that? Or why wouldn't I bring that to my team and build that relationship? Just because you may not be as competent doesn't mean that you can't bring that relationship and network, which takes what, an hour of your day an hour of your day to say to your agent, I want to know who the top CEOs are in my local market. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to have dinner with them. Okay. So have a dinner with the agent. Like, how is that difficult? Yeah. In the end, the agent might make money off it. <laughs> yeah. And right. at the end of the day, I'm going to look at my agent and say, don't think that I don't know how you're scaling your business based upon me being your client. By the yeah. way, I'm going to need 20% of your business if you want to continue to be in business with me. Yeah. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Like I watch LeBron, I watch Rich Paul, I watch oh, yeah. Mav. That's an ecosystem. Why wouldn't you create your own ecosystem? Yeah, I think that's probably like the 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 level a lot of people are shy of putting out, right? Yeah, is is he set up a business in a way where 
multiple different facets. Basically, every part of his life that he had outsourced somewhere else, he created an in-house solution for. Production, agency stuff, all, all of that, right? Marketing. And I think um, there's only a select number of athletes in the world that can do that. But over time, that number is going to increase, right? It's going to, because the costs are getting lower to do things, the, the, uh, the way that you can interact with people to reach people is changing. So I think uh, that probably, you know, gets, gets more uh, possible over time. But he right now is like the top. Or somebody creating an entity in which you can help athletes, the right athletes squeeze that margin and all the productive, all the creative yeah. aspects too. Like that's, I think that's what frankly we're building with our company and Improbable is how to help athletes, the right athletes scale that portion of their business because not every athlete will be able to do it, but there is a lot of untapped revenue on certain deals that athletes look at who only look at it from a, a binary perspective, right? So it's like, oh, here's my deal with X brand. Oh, I'm gonna get $2 million. I'm like, well, wait a second. Like, what amount of money does that brand allocate for all their athletes and how they do production? By the way, like, let's carve up a slight piece of that. And all of a sudden, if you're squeezing the margins on that, you're making an extra 15% you know, on what their production budget is that's untapped revenue that you would never have seen before. Yeah. Why wouldn't you look at a model that way? Yeah. What do you do outside of ESPN? I do it's a lot. It sounds like you do a lot. <laughs> I, so for you, I don't know. We're sitting in your restaurant. <laughs> which we is, are, yeah. Which is uh, the cabin, New York City, New East Village. Great restaurant. Um, so there's this. You're talking about other businesses here. Like, just tell me the scope of, I mean, I, there's probably a million things, but the few of the biggest ones. So I'm not sure that restaurants are the best business investment uh, to get involved in, but, you know. <laughs> Why I, not? I, well, I just think there's a... The last couple of years have been really challenging. Right? Yeah, specifically with the right pandemic. The pandemic yeah. And I, I, I will give, I mean, Joey Aponte, who is like a brother to me, who's been involved in this business for a very long time, is one of the most creative people that I've ever met and works his ass off. I mean, he lives, eats, and shits this restaurant 24 7. Yeah. And looking to scale that in New York City and creating the right branding and imaging around it. Like, you know, we have a couple of different partners, Kenny Hamilton, who manages a couple of different musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, who bring, we bring people through here. We've had 50 Cent here, we've had Fat Joe, we've had other people here that have came and plugged us. So we kind of created that energy here in the Lower East Side, um, which is really cool. And it's a place I can always come to. So he's worked his tail off to kind of manage expectations through the pandemic and PPP loans and all the things we are yeah, there. So it, yeah. it's challenging. Um, I have my own production company. I'm partners with Giannis in, in doing that. So once again, scaling a lot of his endorsements. And what do you guys agents. do for production? Is it uh, like longer form stuff? Is it documentaries? Is it? The, all the above. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so we're in the process of selling a docu right now. Um, we've been able to work with all of his endorsements and scale that to a degree from the production perspective and the creative perspective mm -hmm. and unscripted and scripted content. So building that out. And once again, that, that whole concept themes around how to do that at scale for other athletes and create you know, for lack of a better terms, like what's a new formed agency, right? But it's under a content house. So we have all these opportunities from, you need help with your contract. We could bring in the right consultative measure to help you with that. Even though I don't want to get involved in contracts, yeah. I'd rather stay away from that. That's your right. agent's responsibilities. But how do I help scale the athlete business from a managerial perspective and also from a content perspective, thinking about the athlete truly from a 360 degree measure. Yeah. So I think that is something I'm passionate about. Um, looking to kind of re-emerge myself back in the sports business market, uh, something that I have a couple of things up my sleeve that I'm working on. And then I also, I, I've made some investments on things that I think are very aligned with who I am authentically. So, you know, getting involved in the risk mitigation space was something that was very passionate 
for me because of having disability insurance, having to think about a Lloyd's of London policy when I had decided How to- How does Lloyd's of London work, by the way? <laughs> I, I think this is fascinating, and I think uh, a lot of people don't know about this type of stuff, right? Which is just like athletes getting insurance policies in general. I'm curious, what's your perception on Lloyd's of London and the policy at measure overall? Uh, I imagine that most people think of it as a, a typical insurance policy, right? Like one of the one of the funniest examples I always hear about is, oh, they're like, uh, Lionel Messi has his left foot insured for $600 million. And I'm like, does he really, first off? And two, like, what the <laughs> fuck does that what look like? What does that like? even mean? Yeah, like, what does that even mean, right? Uh, so so I think of it as just, just disability insurance, right? Yeah. Like if you can't play your sport, um, you have a policy that covers mm-hmm. some degree of that. And there's payments made and et cetera. Loss of value. Loss much. of value, yes. yeah, pretty much. So, mm-hmm. so how do you explain it to people though? So in a very simplistic form, because I've learned that that way cuts through with people, right? (laughs) I'm like, hey, so you should have the best coverage in case the ultimate devastation moment occurs on the court, right? But it's still, you have to dig so deep into the trenches about loss of value Mm -hmm. because some players particularly have injuries in which they're still able to play. So like literally going through the insurance company to try to say, well, the value went from being the second pick in the draft to being, you know, a second round. That value is equated towards two and a half million. Like you still have to show that it didn't equate to that, which is challenging. So I feel like we've seen NFL. Like, wasn't there a couple guys over the last few years that got hurt before the draft and fell, and they had those? I want to say maybe Jalen Smith. There was a few guys I feel like that got hurt in the bowl games or whatever and went through and they had to deal with this stuff. And it's very difficult determining to I think your point, which is like, were you going to be a top five pick, top ten? 20, 30, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know, right? But, uh, here's the only problem with that, even if you are insured properly. Yeah. Like, and I, I try to tell, because I, I wanted to graduate school in three years. Mm-hmm. I had a chance to. But the amount of money I left on the table was staggering, right? So I had a Lloyd's of London policy for $20 million loss of value. In college? In college, right? Okay. So my, and what is that? And you're making payments in college for that? Or how does that work? Essentially, you're taking out a loan to make to payments that so you're allowed to Same take you would do if you're like training for the draft or 1,000%, right? right? Yeah. And you're paying back that loan with a certain interest yeah. rate that is fixed and you can go about it. They that. know you're going to get paid. But typically, paid, you're so. allowed to do that because you know... You know you're going to You know draft. you're going to go... Like, I knew I was going to go top five. Yeah. So, but the way it was actually explained to me on the back end after I did the Lloyds and London policy, when you start looking at the holistic aspect of what your value is. So, okay, that $20 million loss of value policy that I had. If I get hurt, else I can never play basketball again, I get that $20 million. But if I were to say, you know what? I'm not gonna come back to school. I'm gonna go to the NBA. The value of my contract, if I get extended, could be $100 million, mm-hmm. right? So this is securing a fraction of that, right? Less than one fourth, essentially. but. I much rather tell my client to go play because then all of a sudden that policy rises to $100 million instead of 20 and you're serving an internship. You're getting paid for an internship. So I much rather you have that increased loss of value contract being a rookie at 19 because I can get you paid 100 million instead of you trying to strive to graduate that in case you can never play basketball again, you get 20 million. Yeah, I never thought about it that way, right? Because if you leave early, you're one year closer to all that stuff, right? Yeah. And, that and essentially the NBA is paying you as an internship. So, yeah. you know, as NBA, if that thir- three years is guaranteed, fourth year is team option, the sooner you can get towards that fourth year team option, the better you are. Yeah. So like if you're coming to the league at 19 years old, 
all of a sudden, think about it. If I'm coming to the league at 21 years old, I'm getting my next contract at 24, right? Mm-hmm. Then I'm getting my next deal, if that's a five-year deal, at 29. Whereas if I'm getting my deal at 19, I'm getting that next deal at 23. You want to just move everything up. Exactly, 22. Yeah, then I get my other deal at 26, and I'm getting my next deal while I'm in my prime at 31. See, that's I feel way like different. people framed all these other alternative options, right? Uh, uh, the developmental league, the uh, oh, you have overtime, overtime right? Elite, yeah. there, there's a bunch of different things Sit you can play overseas. That, yeah, yeah I, I love overtime, right? And I think that a lot of those things were framed as uh, athletes couldn't get paid in college, right? Mm-hmm. That has obviously changed. Uh, but I feel like it more has to do with this, which is basically you're moving everything up on a timeline where you may be ready to go to the NBA, right? You may be ready to play. Like a guy like LeBron, he was clearly ready to go play. That rule physically was ready. physically yes. ready, physically ready mm-hmm. to go play. There's other guys that may not be ready but want to move up that timeline, to your point, to, to get money faster. Everyone has a different family situation back home. Maybe they need the money, right? There, there's certain things that go along with it. Uh, but I'm curious your thoughts on, I mean, you're on the board of overtime, it sounds like. So your thoughts on just this shift overall, right, of athletes choosing different routes, going to college, not going to college, playing overseas, getting to the NBA quicker. You think that's a good thing, more options? Well, I mean, let's let's do the one and done scenario, okay? Yeah. So, and then I'll, I'll let you in your own mind compare the two avenues. Mm-hmm. So I am a one and done guy. I'm slotted to be a top 15 draft pick in the 2023 NBA draft. Mm-hmm. I'm going to college for one year. Yep. All I gotta do is get by the first semester. So yeah. as much as you're gonna sit there and tell me that the educational value is important, it's not, yeah. right? Because if you know as a coach that this is a filtering system, mm-hmm. right, and that you're trying to have me come in to brand the organization and also to worry about that helps you recruit for the following year. Look, I just had this one and done guy. I want him to be on his way. Don't sell me on the education of it, yeah. okay? That's, but also the, the training aspect is different. I'm still going to class. Now, I value education, right? So for me, it was about, how do I build my course load towards things that are going to help me when I ultimately become a pro and I want to be an entrepreneur? Yep. That's not every athlete. Man. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Guys that know they're leaving in six months, they couldn't care less a lot of them, right? Why would I care yeah. less? You're incentivized not to. Like, I'm about to become a millionaire. Yeah. So, and you know you're not, you, maybe you go eventually, but you're not getting your degree right now. So, Overtime Elite, which actually one of the reasons why I do sit on the board and I really like their methodology is, okay, hey, look, we're actually going to involve you in financial literacy courses. Yeah. We're gonna actually teach you that you don't have to pay your agent 4%. You can negotiate that right down because 80% due to the CBA of your contract is fixed. So yeah. I'm being schooled now on my profession. Yeah. Regardless of whether I become a pro, I play overseas, I'm learning about the business of my profession. Right? And I'm also learning about how could I pivot off this business model and maybe I want to get into broadcasting. Maybe I want to get into team ownership. Maybe I want to get into real estate. Maybe I want to work with this aspect of team ownership. So there's so many ways that you can learn about the ecosystem of basketball as a business, which you would never really learn in school. And by the way, now I'm training for six hours a day. Yeah. Like now I have a nutritionist right, who's saying- It's like I, academies in Europe. That's how exactly. I think about it, right? Like if you're a, if you're a football player, soccer player in mm-hmm. Europe, uh, you're a pro at 13. You're a pro, yeah, immediately, right? And, and you're, it's individualized training for a specific thing that you're trying to do for the rest of your life. And we had trade schools, right? There's there trade schools today. It's the same exact thing, but it's for basketball. It's like I, I make a joke. I log on to Twitter all the time, and I always see uh, tweets about, man, I wish they taught me finance in, in high school, or I wish they taught me how to pay taxes. I wish they taught me how to you know, uh, register a car, like you know, things you actually need to know in the real world, things that you don't really care about you actually do learn in school, right? Mm-hmm. And it feels like that. Right. I know I'm going to have to hire a financial advisor. Let's figure out kind of what I need to learn or what I need to do. I know that I'm going to go to the NBA, so let's train for that, obviously. I know that I need to uh, 
uh, hire a team around me. Let's figure out what that takes to do. And it feels like they're probably taking a more realistic approach than the current like legacy system of college. Well, also a legacy system of college, you start recognizing, okay, when you see that the NCAA tournament is sold to TNT for yeah. X amount of billion yeah. dollars, and you're saying, well, athletes now are still, they're getting these NIL deals. And I, I was like, oh, this NIL deal, I'm like, it still pales in comparison to what these schools are making. And Inevitably. My hot take years ago was that football players, college football players, mm-hmm. we're going to have revenue sharing. That doesn't seem crazy anymore. It's not, no. That was like four or five it's years. That before NIL, right? Everyone's like, let's get to NIL first. All right, we're there. I've been saying this for 10 we're years there, on right? TV. And but you know what has to happen if you do rev share? What? They have to be employees. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to have a union. But when you get they to- have to have the union, when you they get don't to have a, anybody representing the athlete well, voice right now. Look at uh, sports like the UFC, how hard yeah, that is to, to exactly. build unions, right? It's, just, it's very difficult to get everyone on the same page. Things People are making, same reason why, uh, you know, if you're the NFL, the NBA, whatever sports league, you're really representing like 90% of the players. The guys that are making the most money, they're like, hey, you know, I don't like- You're try the to get, anomaly. Exactly, right? You're, you're, you're representing the practice squad guys. You're representing the, the minimum guys. And I think that's in a lot of ways why the owners get what they want because they know that these guys need money, right? They need to check. They don't want to lock out. They don't want these situations. Uh, and it's unfortunate because I think there'd be a lot of changes across professional sports. So if you look at the NBA, right? How much value does LeBron drive for the league? How much value does Kevin Durant drive for the league? How much, <laughs> you could argue these guys, they make what, 35, 40 million bucks a year, 50 mm-hmm. million bucks a year. They're worth three, four times that, right? Agreed. And uh, it's, it's, you know, people call me crazy for calling it unfortunate, right? Because they're making a lot of money. It's great. It's amazing. Uh, but everyone wants to be paid what they're worth, right? If you're worth two, three, four, five hundred million dollars, why shouldn't you be paid that? I agree with that comment. Yeah. Um, but it is like, you know, when you're surrounded by billionaires that are trying to, extra, you know, it's really funny whenever... And I said this to you while we were talking, like athletes get criticized way more than politicians or, you know, celebrities to a degree. Like when these contracts are made public, like you don't know how much Usher makes per year. But like as LeBron, like you see it right there on paper. So people don't feel bad, but you don't know how much the owners are making. That's not that's not public information. That's private information. So when you see the value of these franchises, you know, Matt and Justin Ashiba. Shibia, who are you know new owners of the Phoenix Suns, when you see them buying a, a percentage of it for four billion dollars, <laughs> and you're like, well, hold on a second, Joe and Clara Sai got the Brooklyn Nets for three point one billion dollars. Like, where are we going with team evaluation? Well, Sarver, Sarver was criticized more than any NBA owner, right? And if people knew how much money he made on the team. He got blessed. <laughs> yeah. People, he got blessed for being kicked out of the, it's same yeah. with Donald Sterling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, he's crew, get him out of here. I'm like, all right, you're blessing him with a $3.4 billion yeah. dollar check, yeah. whatever it is from Steam Bomber to hand over ownership well, of the There's team. a reason why they're buying the team too, right? They don't, they're not doing it to waste money. Exactly, they're doing it to Even make Even at money. $4 billion, they think the value's gonna go But up. are we eventually gonna bottom out in that market? I mean, considering like where macroeconomics are these days, uh, TBD or not. Yeah. I mean, I, I think frankly, I think with that the where biggest, TV rights are going too with Amazon and Apple wanting to play in this forum, it's gonna be interesting. I, I tell people there's three things that the NBA uh, seem to be focused on and, and are gonna be very beneficial for owners. One's the media rights. Yep. They should triple to 75. That Every team gets a portion of that. Huge deal, obviously. Owners benefit tremendously. Players benefit also. Uh, the NBA is a global game. All you need is a basketball and a hoop. Anyone can mm-hmm. play in the world. That's a big benefit over football, which no one else plays in the world, really. Uh, and I think they're trying to expand to, to London, Germany, all these other places. Just the NBA but in Paris. But but yeah, it's, but football specifically, right? Yep. They're finding it difficult because if you don't play football growing up, you really don't care about it, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't play the sport growing up, if you've never thrown a football, if you've never tackled someone, if you've never done these things or you haven't watched it during your life, it's not as intriguing to you. Basketball is different. 
you know, they're growing globally. China wasn't even a business in the NBA a couple decades ago. Now it's a $5 billion business. You can't say certain things about them otherwise, <laughs> right? Like the, there's just- Been down that road before? It's a big business, right? And, and my point is that they're now gonna do that in Africa. They're gonna do that in India. The, the, the two other biggest you know, uh, regions in the world for that. And then I think the third thing is uh, that has somewhat flown under the radar, it seems, is that um, when team valuations get so high, there's only so many people that can buy those teams, uh -huh. right? There's only so many billionaires, obviously, but then there's only so many billionaires that actually want to own an NBA team. And uh, when you reduce the amount of people that can buy those things, the valuations stop climbing because no one's willing, the demand isn't there. So the NBA is now opening it to sovereign wealth funds. Saudi Arabia can come buy a team if they want part of a team. DAOs right? eventually. Yeah, right. So so, yep. so endowments, you know, pension funds, all these people, right? Um, so if you're telling me that Harvard University can own 10% of the Celtics, that value that value is going to go up, right? You're just opening the door to so many more investors. So I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, tailwinds powering valuations. The one thing that I mentioned before that I think is is uh, going to become a point. I think so. I don't know. The next CBA is up in a couple. What is it? A year, two years, years right? So a couple of years. I don't think it happens this one, and then you have to wait another eight, maybe ten years, however long it goes for. Uh, but I think that we're reaching a point, and these things happen fast, right? Everything happens fast. Player empowerment is getting to a point where I think at some point. Uh, you, you reach a spot where players are going to demand a share of the upside, right? Michelle Roberts has already said they want equity, fan, you know, mm -hmm. some sort of equity for players. I think it's going to be very, 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 very difficult for them to get it. Owners are not going to want to give that up. But I, I spoke to, and I'm not going to say his name because, again, a private conversation, but a former NBA owner uh, who's very, very wealthy, has an individual business outside of the NBA, he said, if LeBron James came to me and said, I need $20 billion to start the live golf version of the NBA tomorrow, I would have it with him within 24 Not hours. Not even a question. Yeah, because that's how powerful the stars are to the league, right? The NBA, all of a sudden, the teams become fungible, right? Where they're not, the Celtics are the same as, as another organization, right? The Lakers are the same as the Thunder because, sure, they're in these big markets, but the players are the valuable things, right? The players, mm -hmm. the personalities, the social media, everyone wants to be them, they're recognizable, all these things, they don't play with helmets. All of that I think is going to, uh, they're the ones that hold the real power. And for the, I think you're absolutely on point with that. And I think eventually what you get to is for those players that can kind of warrant that kind of power, yeah. then that helps you with retention, right? Yeah. Like all of a sudden, if you're a Kawhi, you have a small piece of the Spurs, you're not thinking about going to the Clippers, oh, yeah. right? And probably you would, negotiate that in the CBA that you wouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Like if you accept an equity stake within a team, whether that be small or significant, like you're not allowed to be traded, you will be with that team for the rest of your career, which team owners want more than anything. Like they want yeah. stability with their franchise. Mm -hmm. By the way, like LeBron in Cleveland, like there was a reason- How valuable like, was he oh to Oh my Cleveland? God, yeah. just ask Dan Gilbert. I mean, yeah. granted now they're back with Donovan Mitchell and yeah. some of the pieces they have, but yeah. still like, Every game was on TV. Think about what that does for your advertising. Think about he was one of the most powerful owners in the NBA because he also owns a lot of the the property around, you know, where yeah. the where the building is yeah. and stores and parking lots and things of that sort. That's so, what the Bucks have done so well. The exactly. Bucks they own all the real estate around. They built the whatever they call the. Uh, I don't forget what the village is called, but it's the same thing the Braves have done. Right, all these organizations know uh, that the team's just the centerpiece. To your point about production house, everything. Same thing with Jim Dolan. I mean, think about yeah. the rights, like, or what the Yankees with the Yes Network. Yeah. Right, yeah, you got yeah. Redbird investing in the Yankees, like, you know, one of the biggest private equity firms in the yeah. world. Like, so. AC Milan, same, yeah. It's, just, it's a stuff, thing that, yeah. it's a theme, and you own all the air rights above. Yeah. Like, that's a huge thing that people will just gloss over and not even paying attention to. So, if you have a chance to participate in that from a player perspective, 
Like that's where you get, you're already getting generational worth. Yeah, from just the contracts the, now have, have escalated to a point where it's, I mean, even before, but now specifically, right? If you're getting a you know $250 million contract, you could breathe we, and you'll be fine. So we laugh with Giannis. So like four years ago, Giannis had that four-year $235 million contract. And yeah. we're like, that pales in comparison to where guys are now four years later. Yeah, it's nuts. Like it's just insane nuts. where we're going. Yeah. And I imagine, uh, I mean, his story, I think, is one of the best in the, you know, not only the NBA, but in sports, right? Where he came from, what he what he had to do to get here and all this stuff. Like that type of money is not only generational, but I imagine a lot of people, it's more than they could ever imagine, right? Like you, you, you could, you know, you're good forever, right? You and your family and all these things. Uh, and it's, it's cool to see that because it's obviously one of the things that are driving entertainment for people globally. Um, but I think that over time, eventually, you just want a bigger piece of the pie, right? Agree. You know, and you we, know by the way, we it. see that, you know, when you talk about NBA Africa, like Masai Ujiri, who yeah. is the general manager and president for the Toronto Raptors, mm -hmm. they brought a lot of guys over from Africa. They do a ton. Barack Obama uh, is huge in that with Higher Grounds, his production company. They're doing a lot of stuff over in Africa. So when you see, you talk about the game going from China, which is a completely different experiment um, and experience, frankly, dealing with Tencent and everything that we just dealt with Daryl Morey a couple of years ago saying free Hong Kong and the financial implications of what I love Daryl Morey, by the way. I love so Daryl Morey, too. <laughs> I love Daryl Morey, too. I'm by the way, Morey. I was drafted right after Yao Ming. I mean, if anybody were to really break down you know, what percentage That's of Yao Ming's contract had to, to go? Get drafted. Seriously? <laughs> like seven, a, six, a Chinese guy coming out that yeah, year? There's but not you, many of those coming. But you actually see what percentage area. of his contract actually had to go back to China. You're like, yo, man, yeah. that's... That's messed up. That's really fucked up. Yeah. Right? But, um, I mean, that's where the business of sport is going. It's becoming international. Yeah. Yeah. You got any questions for me? I do, man. What, like, what is it that you want to build with this whole thing? What's the uh, ultimate goal? What's the end game? Uh, people ask me that all the time. They always ask me that. Oh, so and, you're and, saying and, I didn't and, come up with a unique question? No, no. I just, my, my point is I don't have a great answer. My, my answer is always that when I started doing all this stuff, uh, it was born out of genuine interest, right? Which I, which I think has, to a degree, helped me a lot because uh, it's something I would do even if I didn't get paid for it. I literally would have conversations like this. I would research things on my own. I would tell friends about them. And that's really how I was born. My friends would say, and my wife would tell me, you should just do something with this. Like, you always know these interesting facts. You care about these details that, you know, no other people knew. Like, you should do something. So I think, I think that's led me to be super successful with this uh, endeavor specifically. But I think about the future, uh, my goal has always been to be... To, to be the best source and the largest platform globally for sports business. Mm -hmm. Just the largest and the best globally, right? And, and that means two different things. The best to me is more important because I want everyone to know when they see something with my name on it that it's quality and they want it to be very well done, very thought out. Uh, it doesn't always have to be opinionated, right? It doesn't have to be a hot take. It doesn't have to be whatever it is, but you know the type of level of quality you're gonna get in return. So that's always been important to me. And then I thought that if you do that very well, that was going to be the second part of that, which will scale. What would be the differentiator from places like Sportico or SBJ, you know, more traditional sources? Yeah, I think uh, a personality is very important, right? I think having your name behind it is the most powerful thing you can do because people recognize that as you, right? Uh, you could look at a company, whether it's one of those companies or someone else, and you may recognize the name, but you don't know exactly what, what it is, what it stands for, who's behind it, what their thoughts are, what their opinion is, what they like, what they don't like. And you get all of that with me. So I think that's, I think that's important for sure. And I think the second part of that is um, building something under your own name gives you the ability to be selective about what you talk about, how you talk about it, uh, what you do with your time, 
how you build your business, the way that you build your business, who you work with, all that stuff, right? And I say that because um, I, I, I've probably, I've sacrificed a ton from like a business growth perspective, from revenue generation, from uh, growth of list, of email subscribers, growth of accounts, all this stuff, because not only have I uh, been unwilling to work with people I don't agree with or hmm. people that I think are difficult, but I've also been unwilling in a lot of instances to talk about things that may be topical or may go viral or things like that, knowing that it's not who I am, it's not the level of quality that I want, it's not the uh, vision of, of myself that I want other people to see, right? So look, I, I, the number one thing I always tell people that wanna create content or do similar things that I'm doing is you have to decide two things. You have to decide that you're willing to do this for the rest of your life because it's fucking hard. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, it's like, a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, right? You get, it's 24 seven all the time. You have to be willing to do it forever. And number two is you have to decide before you ever start that you don't give a shit what anyone says. Agreed. You, you literally cannot care what anyone says. Cause you know, there's, there's like, you know, uh, there's, a, there's probably a common joke at this point, but there's certain stages. You look at it and when I started doing this, my wife was my first subscriber on the newsletter, <laughs> right? Then I told my brothers about it. I got, you know, three or four more subscribers there. Then I announced it on Instagram. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I probably got 50 more subscribers, just like family, friends, whatever, 100 subscribers. I had no social media following, anything. Mm -hmm. And at first, I'm like, you know, I'm starting to tweet out these links. All these people are like sharing, I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm not naive. Like some of my friends, some people I knew or people that I thought I was good friends with were probably like, look at this idiot. He's got this job. He's doing this on the side. It's not going to work. His opinion is stupid. He's not a good writer. The videos suck. He shouldn't be podcasting, right? Like a million different things. Mm -hmm. But if you allow that to, to uh, debilitize, debilitize you, whatever. Yeah. If you allow that to, to stop you, we'll yeah. say, uh, You'll, you'll never win. So you have to decide immediately before you even start that you don't give a shit what anyone says. And I'm sure it's the same on TV, right? Like every day, every day, social media, whatever. And it's probably even more difficult because I've, I feel like I've built these avenues for myself where um, I'm able to expand on my opinion in a lot of ways, right? Like the newsletter, maybe it's, you know, a thousand words a day. But I can write a thousand words. Hmm. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of words, yeah. right? I can do a podcast. We could talk for five hours if I wanted to. Or you could talk for two minutes, 20 minutes, 20 seconds on TV. I've tried to intentionally build systems and, and avenues where I can be myself and expand on my, my opinions. And I think that that's becoming more important because um, similar to how I said before, and I, I don't want to rant about this, but when I say everything's going short form, right? Everyone's attention spans are dropping. Uh, they like TikTok. They like all these things. People still listen to, to four-hour podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. They'll still watch an entire series on Michael Jordan. They'll still watch Joe Rogan talk to someone for two hours, right? And there's a reason why that stuff's popular because it's really high quality and it's long form stuff and it's things people care about. So my bet is that uh, not only does that continue to be more important, but we actually swing the pendulum back a little bit that way and people care more about the depth of things rather than the the uh, kind of the loudness of them, we'll call it. With everywhere we are from a macroeconomic perspective right now, we're trending towards a recession. You're mm -hmm. seeing a number of people being laid off. We're seeing Google lay off 18,000 employees. Within this, as that equates to the sports realm, where do you think the opportunities, you know, they say during recessions are moments where a lot of people are able to capitalize on different opportunities. So like, what do you think those sports opportunities are? So From like a uh, building a business standpoint? Yes. Or, yeah. Um, so. I, I do it, but media scares me. I think media is very difficult, um, f depending on the business, obviously, and, and kind of what you're doing. Um, I think that during good times, media can be great. We've seen businesses sell at tremendous valuations. 
Uh, I think that you have to do something different. It can't be the same kind of thing that everyone else is doing. But my problem with uh, with with media in general right now is that um, it's it's what we spoke about, right? Like the, the you have to have an opinion on something. Your 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 voice has to be the loudest, mm-hmm. uh, or it has to be super high quality. So. Media can be good, it can be difficult depending on where it is. I think there's a lot of dollars that are willing to invest in um, the technology side of things. Yeah. I think tech is is a huge opportunity in sports. Um, I, I literally did a Twitter thread last night about the NFL and technology and, and kind of how they're thinking about things, the chips in the football, the chips in the shoulder pads, what they're trying to accomplish and all of that stuff. I think that's huge, but I don't think it's huge from a, uh, a stamp, that standpoint. I think it's bigger from the fan experience standpoint. Uh-huh. I think that, um, so Formula One's a good example. I don't know if you watch Formula One. Formula One has these driver cams in the, inside the helmet. Hmm. So they were developed by a company three, four, five years ago maybe, uh, and they've been testing them out. The thing is they have to be very light because they're trying to make the cars basically as light as possible or close to the barrier that you can get. The players, uh, I mean, the drivers are all a certain weight, right? So weight matters a lot. Yep. So the camera's like three grams. It's very, very light. Um, and they tested them out for years. They just put them on one or two drivers a race, and eventually, you know, Formula One held control of the tapes and everything, and they would, you know, slowly put them out and give them to people, and people loved them. This year, they're expanding it to every driver, and they're going to put it for everyone. Right? Very good view, everything. But why on a race day can't I just be Lewis Hamilton for the day? I mean, you think it's going to translate, yeah. That's what I think, right? You're going to put on a headset, or, or maybe it's even on the TV or whatever it is, right? And you're going to be him for the day. You're going to sit in the car with him. You're going to do all these things. So I think there's stuff like that that could be very interesting. Um, and I think when you think about sports in general, there's a lot of uh, well, dry powder, right? Just money sitting on the sidelines right now. Funds that raised money two, three, four years ago haven't deployed all of it. Mm-hmm. People that are waiting for good opportunities. And when you talk about Google, Microsoft, Apple, like all these companies that have started to lay people off, I see those as the people that are going to go build these companies, yeah, right? Because if you really think about what do these people do, some of them, sure, they're going to go look for another job, a vast majority of them. Some of them, though, are going to take this as an opportunity, and that's where some of this stuff happens, right, is you have an opportunity, you get laid off, you have more free time on your hands, you, you want to get back at people, you want to prove people right, right? Whatever it is, they're going to go get some of this money, go, go do startups. So I think over the next four or five years, there's several different avenues. But sports, like I always tell people, there's never been a better time to do this stuff because there's more money than ever. Uh, it's global. Everyone's connected now through social media, through TV, through all this, through the internet, through other things. So the 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 impact that you can have, the total addressable market, however you want to quantify it, is larger than it's ever been, and it's going to continue to grow. So I think sports is a, it's a great opportunity to not only raise money to invest, but but build things. What do you think about things like? Um you know, like MLS, like some of these smaller investments. So I invested yeah. in uh, PLL, really? Premier Lacrosse okay, yeah. League. Um, what a great league, by the way. It's great. Yeah, I, I think the Rainbow Brothers are are special. Paul, I think, that, yeah, different. I, yeah, I think they're great. And and the thing that I like about um, that is when I look at the PLL, and I always thought this before. I don't even know if I've ever told them this. Maybe I have, but when I looked at them, I was like, oh, that's exactly how I would do it. Hmm. I was like, the branding is on point. The way they're communicating with the fans is amazing. The product on field is great. It's growing, right? You can look at the growth numbers, both uh, from like a, a domestic grassroots perspective, like youth is growing, uh, more goals, more more players are popping up in different states. TV rights are going to become a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's, now it's relatively small. So if you want to get on the ground floor, I think, I think some of that is great. Uh, MLS is an interesting one to me. I think MLS... Um, soccer domestically has seen and will see a bigger growth with the World Cup coming here. I think that's huge. I think that uh, MLS has, has gotten relatively big quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, uh, it's interesting because I think it'll continue to grow. But if you look at the business model today, a lot of the way that they've grown is expansion fees. 
right? Mm -hmm. They had 10 teams a decade or two ago. Now they have however many teams. And every year someone's paying 150, 200, 300 million dollars. And that's what's driving the revenue. The team split that money. So that's what's driving the revenue. When that stops, you can't go past 30, 32 teams. We'll see what happens. I think that uh, to, to keep the valuations that they have and continue to grow, we'll have to see a, a big jump in, in viewership. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's I think it's all going to grow. I think the thing that scares me is um, uh, paddleball. You like paddleball? <laughs> paddleball or, or pickleball? Pickleball. pickleball. Sorry, yeah, with pickleball. everybody having a pickleball team yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, well, but, I know why they did it, right? Because yeah, and I've also seen a lot of athletes that get you know sweat equity for really just attaching their name to it. There's yeah. really no. If people knew how, how much some of these athletes <laughs> exactly uh, invested in yes. the team, then I think it would be different. And I think that right. I, I don't think it's bad from an ownership perspective. I think that uh, fans see that or consumers see that and they see oh lebron's betting big on pickleball and it's like he ain't been big on pickleball <laughs> he's not been big on pickleball attaching not, your name to something doesn't mean that you're making a, a huge investment yeah in the product. yeah and um I, I think though if you were to look at the economics of it and you say okay a team costs x i've seen it that how much a team costs relative to the upside it's a good bet right mm. and i what think, is the cost by the way uh, so we got pitched, I got pitched ownership in a team. This was right after Gary V did it, but yeah. before the wave of all the athletes, okay. before LeBron, before yeah. Kevin, before all these guys. Uh, and a team in their league was going for, I think, 500,000. Oh, okay. So like, not bad, yeah. right? You get a TV deal, you get tournaments going, whatever, right? And they had the right people behind it. Mm -hmm. My, the thing that was always scary to me was uh, the teams were very lean. So like they had like the same guy that was the GM and the coach, coach. and like the, you know he was like running operations for the team, <laughs> like posting on social media. I'm like I'm like no, you can't I'm not, wear 15 hats. Yeah, I'm not I'm not getting involved in that. Um, but like I think they'll make money. Yeah, it just you know what how much are they going to make? I don't mm -hmm. know. You know, so it'll be interesting. That's awesome, man. Yeah, congrats on everything. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. I come appreciate on, you, man. More to come. More to come. Appreciate Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always. I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.